We ask that you administer to us by your good grace. Allow us, as we open up your word together, to be filled with your presence and to to worship you as we learn more of you and your saving mercy. Allow me to speak clearly on the things before us, and we pray together as a community of believers that we will grow in the likeness of your Son as you've called us to do, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Join me in Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick up our study in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. I would like to start reading verse 8 and down through verse 17, but the heartbeat of our study will be in verse 16 and 17. I'm going to include verse 15 in that as well. Paul writes, first, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, And also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I'm going to highlight at the beginning here that there are two words that I want to emphasize. The one is a strong word, it is the word shame, and the other is, in our English vernacular at least, a rather mild word, it is the word good, good and shame. And I have to say that the things I'm going to preach, I feel some conviction that I have not always been as bold with the gospel as I should have been. And I suspect many of you are like that. And therefore, the word shame strikes home just a little bit. On the other hand, this word good is a rather mild word when we think of the gospel itself. The gospel means what? Good news. And in our English, that word good doesn't quite take into account what the gospel is. I'm thankful for the word good news, gospel, in Greek, euangelion. But I also understand it's going to take the Bible to tell me what is good about the good news to the extent that I would, like Paul, say, I'm not ashamed of this message. I'm not ashamed. And there have been too many times that I can think back where I withdrew from a situation where I could have shown or proclaimed or given answer for, but for whatever reason, you withdraw, you pull back, you remain silent. So the words of Paul here are critical to our understanding of the gospel. 
And I think we realize that these two verses, verse 16 and 17, are the theme and the heartbeat of this entire book. But I look back Genesis to Revelation, and I think these two verses are really the theme of the entire Word of God. It's about the gospel. The whole book, Genesis to Revelation, is about what God would do for sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ. So these two verses, particularly verse 17, are critical to our understanding. And Paul is going to highlight that. The Christian gospel means good, work, good news. But the word itself does not fully express the gospel as the greatest news that this world has ever heard. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that Paul was the herald of the most glorious and majestic and thrilling message that mankind has ever heard. To say the gospel is good news seems to fall short of that. In the course of these two verses, verse 16 and 17, this good news is put into language that brings the very goodness or righteousness of God right to the surface and into the hearts of his people. And Paul says, I have no shame in preaching it. In our study of Paul's letter to the Roman believers, we come to these verses in chapter 1 that are considered the theme of this entire letter, but many of us are aware that these two verses of particular verse 17 were the heartbeat of the Reformation itself. And especially to a man named Martin Luther and his conversion under the doctrine of justification by faith. And in many of the commentaries that I've studied just this week, the authors, several of them, have pointed out that verse 17 is considered Luther's text because it marked the true change in his walk with Christ, taking him out of religion and putting him into the household of God, the faith. James Boyce writes of Luther that in verse 17, it was so obviously a driving, molding force in that man's life. A driving, molding force. You can see the word good in our English language isn't quite enough here. While this can be said of Luther, I believe it can be said even more of the Apostle Paul. That that verse, that truth, justification by faith, was the driving, molding force in his life. It drove him to write the entire book of Romans, which is a book that is critical to the church. In our last study of chapter 1, we concluded with verse 15, but it's here that I want to begin our study because in verse 15, we can clearly discern Paul's intense passion, his driving force behind the gospel ministry. Martin Luther was drawn by the spirit of Jesus Christ out of his Romanistic religion and his understanding of meritorious works to justification by faith alone from this passage. But it's the Apostle Paul that wrote it. It's the Spirit of God that pressed upon his heart that this verse and everything that's in the book of Romans is what the church needs to understand the gospel more fully, to understand just exactly what is good about the good news. And in Paul's mind, and you can see this in the title, this is shameless news. He had no shame in proclaiming this message. Paul's encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and his gospel education by Christ himself directly from the Savior, it drove him to write the very words that Martin Luther only read and studied. 
Both men came under the transforming knowledge of the gospel, but it is Paul's passion, his devotion, his unwavering, fearless service to the doctrine of justification that comes out in the passage that is now before us. So this is a challenging text for me, and perhaps a challenging text for you to receive as well. To a large extent, we're going to be focusing on Paul's passion and his drive concerning his gospel ministry. But the chief element to our study this morning will be the reason that Paul was so driven by it, and that is the gospel itself. In the midst of this monumental doctoral declaration, Paul emphasizes his robust eagerness to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of it. And this unashamed devotion to the gospel is going to be our theme of study this morning, the gospel being the centerpiece. It has to be the centerpiece. Paul's shamelessness to preach the gospel is found in what the gospel is and what it does. Just this morning, we had an excellent Sunday school class uh, where Tim led us through some of the history of the early American church. And the, the speaker in the video hit on so many points that I'm going to be covering this morning. Um, I just see God's hand moving in that. Because we are looking at this na- in this nation at churches and preachers that, in my view, diminish the gospel They pull back from the word. They water down the word of God. And that stems from, whether they want to admit it or not, a shame of the gospel. And we cannot be guilty of that in how we handle the word of God ourselves. God forbid. So I'm going to look at three parts to this text this morning, starting with the proclamation or the preaching ministry of Paul. I'm going to briefly look at his motivation But then we're going to focus on the central truth or what is revealed in and by the gospel itself. Verse 15. We don't need to spend a great deal of time here in this verse because we've already covered this verse in some measure. But verse 15 really introduces us to Paul's drive to preach the gospel, which leads us to ask the question, why? Why this passion? Why is he so driven? Why the obligation in verse 14? And the eagerness in verse 15. And then, verse 16, to declare, I am not ashamed. Why this passion? In our day, we see a very sad drive in many preachers who are very far from this eagerness to preach God's word as we see in Paul. Sometimes it's financial gain. Far too many preachers want the praises of men or popularity or to even chart the number of converts that they have, or to get themselves to a congregation that is mega church size. That's self-promotion. Notoriety, and I'm not saying that all preachers that are pastors of mega churches are self-promoting, but many seek that kind of acknowledgement, that human ambition. Notoriety seems to be a fairly strong motivation for many pastors, not all, but many in our nation. The eagerness that Paul exposes here is because of what the gospel is. And that's why he does not deviate from doctrine. It's why he does not withdraw. He does not minimize. It's why he does not water it down. Because his passion is in what the gospel is and does. And we've already observed from verse 14 that that eagerness was balanced with a sense of duty to minister that was healthy. And it's to be imitated by God's people today. The gospel is the reason here as well. The reason for his duty 
It's the reason for his eagerness, and it's the reason for his shamelessness. This duty, like his eagerness, came from a recognition of what the gospel had accomplished for Paul and what it accomplishes for other believers. Paul had been rescued from bondage to sin. And remember that bondage to sin was a self-righteousness and a devotion to religion, the Jewish faith. In fact, he had no interest in being freed from this bondage because in his ignorance, he thought he was a righteous man. It took Jesus Christ facing off with this arrogant man on the road to Damascus before he would turn. Christ had to intervene, his self-righteousness. He didn't want it. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't sitting on a, on a mule or a camel heading to Damascus reading the four spiritual laws or gospel tract. He was heading to kill, to arrest, and to destroy the church that he so hated. And Jesus came to this man that hated him and said, Enough, Paul. I'm going to bring you into my love, my grace, and my mercy. This had far more profound effect on Paul, I think, than it sadly does on the rest of us when we think about our conversion moment. Mine isn't so dramatic as Paul's, but my conversion itself is equally as dramatic as Paul's. I was just as sinful a man. I was just as dead to God. I was just as lost in my trespasses and sin. So where is my passion? Where's my eagerness? Where's my devotion or my shamelessness with this same gospel? Listen to Paul's concluding words. If you jump back to the end of this book, and I think he summarizes what he's saying here in chapter 1 in chapter 16. Listen to his words in chapter 16 of Romans 25, 26, and 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Almost summarizing what he's opening this book with in verse 16 and 17. These are the words of a man that had come to know the great value and the privilege of coming under the gospel message. The gospel had so taken control of Paul's life. It had so encompassed his every being that he's now declaring chapter 16, this is my gospel. And not in a way that Paul is saying, I created this gospel, but this gospel had taken full possession and ownership of Paul. He's saying, this is mine. This is my life story now. This is my purpose. I live and breathe this. He knew that he'd come into possession of the good news of God's redeeming grace. And it was now Paul's most valued treasure and his greatest calling in life to preach it. He would preach it to Jew and Gentile alike, just as he was eager to bring his gospel preaching to Rome as well, as it says in verse 14 and 15. A point that I do not want us to lose sight of here and that we covered just briefly before in a message is that the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel or good news is not limited to or even a specific reference to evangelism alone. And I say that because if you look at verse 15, Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to these Romans. And who are these ones? Back up to verse 7. 
They're the beloved of God in Rome called as saints. He's writing to these Roman Christians and saying, I am preaching the gospel to you. This informs us that he's not evangelizing those that are already evangelized. The gospel preaching not only brings the lost into the sheepfold of Jesus Christ, but it is gospel preaching that feeds those sheep as well. So when we say we're preaching the gospel, as I am doing this morning, it doesn't mean I'm only speaking to lost people and wanting to bring them to faith. The word of God does more than that, doesn't it? It accomplishes not only bringing those to faith, but transforming them into the likeness of his son. And that's a lifelong journey for all of us. So we continue preaching what? The good news. Because it continues to be good even beyond coming to faith in Christ. These two verses, verse 14 and 15, introduce us to the ministry of gospel preaching that is not limited, I want to point out, to a pastor standing up in a pulpit. The view of gospel proclamation is an obligation and a passion that belongs to every Sunday school teacher, every Awana leader, every counselor. It belongs to every parent that is leading their child in the understanding of the gospel. It is to a neighbor that is sharing Christ, or one that is discipling a younger believer, speaking to a co-worker, encouraging a friend, perhaps. This is the work that God has given to every single believer. Paul is communicating to us the hold and the grasp that every one of us as believers should have on this gospel message. We may have different roles, different offices to fill, but we most certainly have the same gospel. Different gifts, different abilities, yes, but it's the same Christ, the same Savior. And I think we just sang about that in one of our songs just moments ago. The passion, the duty to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ is the same. And Paul then explains why. This is where I want to look at the motivation of Paul. The motive. Verse 16, it says, begins with the word for, which says he's about to explain something. What I previously said, it is because of this. So he's just told us that he's under obligation. The Greeks, barbarians, the wise and foolish. My part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Why? Because I am not ashamed. There's a motive here. He qualifies his eagerness with yet another positive or negative positive expression. Shame is negative. A shame is negative. But to say I am not ashamed is saying I am positively committed to this gospel preaching. It's not an afterthought with Paul. What drove him to preach eagerly and without shame is because, again, of what the gospel is and what it does. And knowing this about the gospel motivated him to proclaim the truth about Christ. I think it is true that if anyone had a reason to withdraw from the gospel ministry, it should be Paul. Think about how he was treated by his own Jewish people. Every city he went to, he was mocked, he was ridiculed. He endured physical persecution, beaten, thrown in jail. Even within the church, remember the church of Corinth, they rejected him as a pastor and they declared, you're not really an apostle. You're a fake apostle, Paul. What drove this man to keep going? If anyone had a reason 
to back off in shame or embarrassment or want to remain quiet or not stand for the truth, it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet he declares, I am not ashamed. It is very likely that those that knew Timothy, that he was a disciple of Paul and he was imprisoned, Paul was imprisoned for preaching the gospel, would have used that against Timothy's ministry there in Ephesus. As Stephen read from 2 Timothy chapter 1, I want to reference that text again so you can kind of keep your finger there. I'm going to be there in just a second. But looking at how Paul was ministering to Timothy, it is rather obvious that people that knew he was connected with Paul used that against him and began to attack Timothy and or his pastoral ministry there in Ephesus. Clearly in 2 Timothy, Paul writes words of encouragement to his young protege because he had been intimidated by influential people who objected to Paul and Paul's gospel ministry. And the fact that Paul was imprisoned would have been used against him, ammunition for them. Look at this guy. He's an idiot. He's in prison. He's not credible. Why are you going? Why do you teach his stuff? Why are you referencing his systematic theology? Paul used the word ashamed because Timothy's fear was actually a reflection on how Timothy viewed the gospel itself. It wasn't really about Paul. Or Timothy's shame of Paul. Or even the impression or the the bias that the opposers had against Paul. It wasn't really about that. At the core of it was a certain shame for the gospel. And Timothy had kind of given way to that. His fear of man had become greater than his gospel appreciation. Do you think Paul was ever tempted to back off from the preaching ministry when opposition arose? Or did he ever feel like shying away from a particular group that was influential and could bring him problem? I would say, yeah, he was tempted. He felt the same pressure that we did. And I have no doubt that those temptations came, especially after he had experienced the kind of trouble that he did from the Jewish leaders as well as the Roman authorities. But what caused him to be bold against those fears came from his knowledge of the gospel and more importantly, who his gospel proclaimed. Listen to these words, in the, again, going back to 2 Timothy. Especially in verse 8 down through verse 12. He says to Timothy, Therefore don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But again, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. In verse 7, he exhorts Timothy, don't be timid in your pastoral ministry. Don't shy away from doctrine. Don't shy away from gospel truth. Don't let others convince you that you should water down the message of God. 
Paul saw that posture as a shame that Timothy felt in the testimony of Jesus Christ, which again is a reference to the gospel preached about the Savior, the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel itself. Paul then goes on to share with his young colleague, this is what the gospel is. Notice verse 8 down through verse 11. He's describing this is what the gospel is. It's what it does. And this is the very reason that he's giving to Timothy, don't be ashamed of this. This is the power of God. This is what it accomplishes. And he writes of God's son and what the cross accomplished. Paul then speaks of how God appointed him to preach and teach this message a message to proclaim the news of what God's son did. And he would do so without shame because he knew the Savior that he was commissioned to proclaim. Shame with the gospel is shame for the Lord God and for his son. It is a strong word and we prefer not to use it when we have shied away from speaking the name of Christ at an opportune time. Or when we may be silent about our own Christian faith when it would be uncomfortable for us to do so and may draw unwanted attention or ridicule against our convictions or our beliefs. We've all been there. And I don't want to use that word shame when I've backed away. But the reality is that's at the root of this thing. And Paul is teaching all of us, Timothy, the believers in Rome, the church today, there is no shame in Christ. There's no shame in his gospel. Don't back away. Don't water it down. Don't retreat. The words of Paul should be remembered at these times. I am not ashamed. Why? For I know who I've believed. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I need to underline that phrase there in 2 Timothy 1. Knowledge of the Savior and his gospel testimony are critical here to our witness for Christ. And this is what Paul does in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He builds our understanding of the gospel such that it is viewed as news that we cannot be ashamed of. Shameless news. This is what's good about the gospel. So the, the meat of the study this morning is going to begin now. The other two points, they were just a preface. We want to look at the gospel revelation itself. Because Paul is saying, I'm obligated, I am eager, I'm joyful to preach this thing, because I'm not ashamed of it. Why? It's because what is revealed in the gospel, it's the gospel itself. That's what he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, because this is who God is. This is what the cross has done. This is who the Son of God is and what he accomplishes. So this brings us to verse 16 and 17 where Paul reviews or opens up and exposes for us why he was so eager and fearless in preaching the cross of Christ. Several gospel doctrines are named here by Paul that supports his drive to preach the gospel. And I'd like to present these as four gospel declarations. If the gospel means good news news that we are unashamed to proclaim, it is surely these truths that reveal the goodness of our message. Again, I don't think the English word quite is adequate here. So we let the word of God tell us what is good about the gospel. As Paul wrote to Timothy in his second epistle, the reason he was not ashamed was because of what he knew and believed with conviction about the gospel and the savior of that gospel. And it would be hoped that exposing 
or revealing the goodness of the gospel will have the same effect on us this morning. Beginning with the second part of verse 16, the gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God. As we read the word of God, we can see his power. If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the power of God to create. We can see his power in the plagues of Egypt and the deliverance of Israel. We can see God's power in battling for Israel as they enter the promised land and they conquer people and nations that were far greater than them. In the Gospels, we see the power of God in healing the sick and the invalid, commanding the demonic realm, calming the storms, and even raising the dead. But the most amazing exercise of God's power has been displayed in the salvation of sinful humanity. There's nothing that compares to the revelation of that power. And it's amazing because the power to do so, the power to save, is beyond our ability to understand apart from the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Second or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural man doesn't even understand this stuff. The spiritual realm, the saving of the soul. It's amazing because God exercised this power to a people so undeserving and uninterested in his saving grace. What God offers in this salvation is the sharing of his riches and glory with those who are once his enemies. God's saving power is driven by his people, driven by his love for a people that don't love him, who don't seek him, and who actually hate his truth. It's the power of God that accomplishes that. The power of God to save is amazing because the power of this salvation reaches endlessly into eternity. It's also amazing to us because we have no ability to affect this salvation for ourselves or even contribute in any way. We have no power with which we can rescue ourselves from the eternal judgment that stands against all sinners. Imagine coming to that day and saying, I don't need the gospel. I'm going to save myself from eternal judgment. We have no ability to even understand that concept. But the power of God does. And it does accomplish this salvation. The power of God in salvation is understood only when we know what we're being saved from. The scripture describes eternal punishment and a fiery torment that forever separates the sinner from God's light from God's love, and from God's life. And this punishment is what all men deserve. There is one reason that the world finds this, or this is one reason that the world finds this a shameful message. When we preach the gospel and we're ashamed of it, or we withdraw from it, it's because the world finds that gospel shameful. They don't want to be told that they are a sinner that is unpleasing to God, that they have no ability to to merit God's favor or to please God in any way. They don't want to be told that they are already damned to eternal judgment, that God's wrath is upon them now. It's not a pleasant message to hear, and the world doesn't want to accept it. So we tend to withdraw from that. Our unrighteousness has aroused the wrath of God that brings his justice against us, a judgment that we have earned and that we rightfully deserve. So the cross of Jesus Christ is preached with the purpose of rescuing sinners from the wrath of God. God's purpose to save his people from their sins is an act of his divine love and grace from a faith that we absolutely have no control over. 
This is the power of God. It is a salvation that requires the sacrifice of his own son, the cost of which is beyond our ability to pay for or our ability to even pay back. Think, who is the greatest human leader in all of history? And we can even use the Bible. Is it Paul or Peter, Abraham, Moses, Joshua? There's a good leader. Or David, maybe Abraham Lincoln, Alexander the Great. Not a single one of them can help us with eternity. None of them can rescue us. It takes the power of God, doesn't it? So God had to intervene and he said, my son will come and do for humanity what you cannot do for yourselves. The gospel is the power of God. Now as one author points out in our text, going back to verse 16, the gospel, it says, the gospel is the power of God to save. Not that God is powerful to save. There's a distinction here. Paul is not saying God is powerful to save. He's saying the gospel is the power of God to save. This is in any way to diminish the power of God. God is powerful to save. But here the focus is not on how powerful God is. Rather, the text says it, the gospel, is the power of God. This is how God exercises his power to save. It is through the gospel message. This tells us that what God has accomplished in the cross of his son is set in motion a plan that powerfully saves sinners. And when that gospel plan is proclaimed and received by faith, sinners are rescued from spiritual death and eternal judgment. This means that the power of God is exercised through Not only the atonement of Christ, but in the preaching of that atonement. John Calvin brings this to light when he writes that the power of God to save comes by the vocal preaching of the gospel or the ministry of God's word. Now this does not in any way suggest that men can save people by their witness. Not at all. What it says is that God works his power to save through the gospel preached. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. The power is God's. But God has chosen to exercise that power to save sinners through the message that is preached. And therefore, Paul says, I will not be ashamed of that. I will preach because the power of God is affected in saving sinners through the message proclaimed. Number two, again in verse 16, the gospel saves everyone who believes. It's unlimited in his power. And this is a motivation for Paul to preach fearlessly to fools and wise, to the Jew and the Gentile, to all nations. The message came to the Jewish people first, but it was intended by God to reach all nations and all people without respect of persons or regard to social distinctions. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia that by the preaching of the gospel, and I'm quoting from Galatians, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, the gospel makes no distinction. It saves whomever God delights to save. And therefore, the preacher goes out to all nations and all people. That's why Paul is motivated without shame to preach to everyone. 
Not just to the Jew, not just to the religious, not just to those who may seem open to the gospel, because remember, Paul himself was not open to the gospel when the gospel was preached to him in Damascus. It says in Acts chapter 2, and this is again Peter's Pentecostal preaching ministry, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be what? Saved. This is what empowers the church to proclaim the good news to all men and why we should never be ashamed to preach it to all men, even those that we might feel a little bit of embarrassment speaking it to. The work upon the hearts of men belongs to God, but we have the commission from Jesus Christ, as it says in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the what? Nations. Every people should hear this message. And this follows the invitation of Jesus himself from John chapter, seven, or John chapter 7, verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If anyone is thirsty, and the one that is truly thirsty, we recognize as the one being drawn by God to his son, John 6. But if anyone is thirsty, let him come. It is not limited. It is unlimited invitation. Paul understood this better than any other gospel preacher. And he understood the sovereignty of God's election. He knew that doctrine. But that was not his choice to make. His calling was to preach to all men. God will draw whom he will. Romans 11 verse 13. For it's the Son of God himself that called that Hebrew Pharisee out of the Jewish community and made him an apostle to the Gentiles. A Jewish man preaching to Gentiles. And here he's saying to Rome, and here I am as well preaching to you. I'm going to preach the gospel. It's powerful to save all men. Ours is a gospel message that is able to save all who come by faith. And this should motivate us today to be unashamed to preach what is good about the gospel. Third, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It exposes, unearths, makes apparent. This is the third motive to preach the gospel without shame in that it reveals who God is. It reveals his goodness and righteousness to those who believe. What this means is that when a sinner turns to faith in Christ, their sins are forgiven and they are made righteous in the eyes of God. God is making his righteousness available to sinners. This is another one of the offenses that the world has against the gospel and why Christians can be a little bit ashamed to preach it. The world finds this shameful because the gospel declares there is no good in any of us. There is none righteous, not one. There is not a single person that is seeking after God. So God has to go after us. The world doesn't want to hear that. What do you mean I have no righteousness? What do you mean I have no good in me? The gospel declares we are dead to God in our sins and trespasses. The gospel rejects any self-effort of man. It rejects man's religious endeavors. It declares that man's righteousness is as filthy rags in the eyes of God. Not a pleasant thing for the world to hear. But this message holds the very power of God to transform a self-righteous, arrogant person into a prostate sinner that recognizes, I am vile before God. God, would you save me a sinner? 
The gospel accepts none of man's righteousness, but provides the repentant sinner with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his son. That's what we call imputation, isn't it? I have nothing in myself. I bring nothing. It is simply to the cross I cling. That's how the hymn goes. Nothing in my hands I bring. It's only to Christ, his cross. And what do we get out of the deal? We get the righteousness of Christ draped over us so that when God sees us, he does not see sinful Monty any longer. He sees the righteousness of God's son. That's the power of the gospel, and it's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed to preach it. It finds man vile and offensive to God, but God does not leave the repentant there. In Philippians chapter 3, I'd like to reference Paul's words again to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Paul recognizes more than any what he was prior to Christ. So he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rushing. He's talking about his own righteousness, his religious devotion, his faithfulness to keep the law. All of that, he said, is as rubbish. It's foul. So that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God to me on the basis of what? Faith. But Paul declared here, so when he came to faith, he had come to the recognition that all of his goodness, all his perceived righteousness, all his devotion, all his own efforts through the law were worth nothing more than refuge in the eyes of God. And that refuse, he's, he's painting in a, in, a, in, a, in a picture that stinks, the foulness of all those good things he was doing as a Jew, as a Hebrew, as a, fee, a Pharisee. It's foul. And again, this is why the world finds our gospel shameful and why Christians can tend to withdraw a bit from preaching it. But the good news is that we're not left there stinking like refuse. We are granted the righteousness that is not our own, Paul says, but it comes to us from God on the basis of faith in the gospel. Believers in Christ may not be admired by the world for preaching this message. But when God looks at his own redeemed children, he sees the re- righteousness of his son. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, God, who made him Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And with this shamelessness in mind, I think of what the author of Hebrews says of Jesus Christ, who is the one that has sanctified us with his own righteousness. Hebrews chapter 2, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he, Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call me a brother. And I'm ashamed at times to speak his name. I find this very humbling and praiseworthy at the same time. The Savior is not ashamed of me, even when I shy away from speaking when I should, his gospel message. He's not ashamed of me. 
But this is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of him either. And finally, it makes, the gospel makes righteous by faith. This explains a little bit more the previous point, but it needs to be said. Because it's the hinge point of Martin Luther's conversion. It's the heartbeat of the gospel. Justification by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, or more accurately put, the just by faith shall live. This was the main theme in Paul's letter to the Galatians as well. Quoting again this same verse from Habakkuk chapter 2. And I'm reading again that quote from verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Again, a more accurate reading is, the righteous by faith shall live. The gospel truth is going to be further explained in detail in this letter to the Romans, as we find in passages like chapter 3 and verse 28. Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So when Paul says in verse 17, The righteous man shall live by faith, what he means is that apart from the righteousness of man, apart from the works of man, the righteous shall live by faith alone and in Christ alone. It's important that we understand what biblical faith is here because it goes beyond just understanding something to be true. In James chapter 2, we read that even the demons believe what is true about God, but they are not saved. So faith goes beyond believing something to be true. And this is a mistake that oftentimes people make when they claim to be Christian just because they agree with the gospel. Years ago, I ran into a teaching on faith that came from Charles Spurgeon, but that was also restated by many other biblical expositors. Spurgeon once wrote, and I, I think we can maybe bring this up on the screen if you're able to do so. Spurgeon wrote, Faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. And he's referencing biblical truth here. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. And faith is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. He has stated three elements to faith that are important. The first is the true knowledge about God, about man, about sin, about Christ and his atonement. The message has to be preached, in other words. We proclaim the truth of Christ. So faith begins with truth. It begins with knowledge. Second, that knowledge in faith is believed as truth. You're not only proclaiming the truth, but it's being received as that which is true. But that doesn't go far enough, remember, because the demons believe that much also. So there's a third point here, that faith trusts in the gospel of God to save, to forgive, and to secure one's destiny. It means I actually put my trust in Jesus Christ and him alone to save. I believe what is true, and I trust in that truth to save. Knowledge, belief, and trust. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about gospel faith or biblical faith. Now, a controversial statement is made by Paul in verse 17, and I have to address it to at least some degree, although for time's sake I'm going to have to make this brief. But this is an introduction to Paul's doctrinal statement of justification. He says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What is meant by that? From faith 
to faith. And I have to say at the outset, there are many sound biblical scholars that have many different views on what this means. I'm going to share my view on it, but I'm not holding tightly onto this, and you shouldn't either. Take it with a grain of salt, because there are a number of really good expositors that have given a number of different reasons as to what Paul means when it says faith to faith. Some believe that Paul is simply emphasizing strongly that salvation is by faith and faith alone. So he doubles up on the word from faith to faith. Some have suggested that Old Testament faith has led to New Testament faith since Paul references the law of the Jew and the Gentile. Some see that faith is being measured here in degrees from, say, a young, weak faith to a strong faith. And if you look at the NIV, it doesn't really help much, but it says by faith from first to last. Well, what is meant by that? This suggests perhaps that the beginning of faith's work has a completion. One very plausible explanation suggests that Paul means that the righteousness of God is revealed from the faith of one believer to the next, to everyone who believes, as it says in the previous verse. In other words, this speaks to the faith of each individual believer, the faith of one to the faith of another. But the best that I can offer you this morning is that which I found to be what I think is a better explanation of what Paul possibly means. And again, I'm not holding on to this too tightly, but the more accurate interpretation of the statement in verse 17 reads, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith to faith, by faith to faith. And then Habakkuk 2, verse 4, is quoted as a support to that statement. The righteous one, by faith, shall live. It appears that Paul is teaching the church that God's righteousness that comes by faith is revealed to our faith so that we trust in Christ and we are saved. In other words, by faith to faith. The righteousness that comes by faith is brought to the faith of the repentant believer. That makes sense to me. And by quoting chapter 2 of Habakkuk, Paul establishes that God's righteousness is imputed to the sinner by faith, and this faith is brought to the one so that they believe. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and if you want these quotes, you can go online to the sermon and find the sermon notes. I've included them on a larger note sheet. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, God's righteousness by faith is revealed to our faith. It is only the man who has faith who sees it and who accepts it, glorying and rejoicing in it. So he's saying kind of the same thing there. John Murray, in his commentary, agrees, writing, From faith, which is the first faith in this formula, points to the truth that only by faith are we the beneficiaries of this righteousness, and so it is a faith righteousness as truly as it is a God-righteousness. To faith, which is the second faith in this formula, underlines the truth that every believer is the beneficiary of what his race or culture or the degree of his faith. I hope this makes sense. It it does to me, but it took me like three or four times to go through all the differing interpretations before I began to catch up. I'm a little bit slow, so it takes me a while. But as I look at this expression, what is Paul telling the church? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or by faith to faith. And then he supports that with Habakkuk 2, as it is written, the righteous man 
shall live by faith. It's that doctrine of justification by faith that is the first faith. This is how righteousness comes to us. It's through the salvation of Christ. It's through the gospel. And that justification, which is by faith, comes to the believer who surrenders by faith to that gospel proclamation. This is also the view of Robert Haldane from his very excellent commentary. He writes that the righteousness of God, which is received by faith, which is imputed to the believer, shall live or have eternal life. This, this view, I think, makes good biblical sense to me in that, as Haldane points out, it's the same explanation that Paul later gives in Romans chapter 3. So jump ahead just quickly, Romans chapter 3. And we'll see the affirmation a bit of Paul opening up this verse 17. And maybe a little bit of the confusion is settled here. But Paul says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, with a little bit more explanation. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed, and is revealed through the gospel, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith, In Jesus Christ. That's the first faith in the formula back in verse 17. The righteousness of God that is apprehended through faith only in Jesus Christ for all those who what? Believe. There's the second faith. For there's no distinction. So that's why I believe this is what Paul is teaching here. And while I appreciate this view over their other possibilities, the doctrinal truth that we cannot miss here and that is agreed by all the views, is that sinners are made righteous by faith. We are justified by faith. And as Paul will clearly show, the righteousness of God comes to us by faith apart from the works of men. In other words, it's faith alone and in Christ alone. Now, I want to conclude with just a few very brief observations and encouragements for us today. Number one, the greater our knowledge of the gospel, and I'm referencing 2 Timothy 1 here. Go back and reread that text. The greater our knowledge of the gospel, the greater our passion and boldness with that gospel. The greater our knowledge of the gospel, the greater our passion and our boldness with us, if we are a true believer. The more we study the truth of God's word, the more we study Christ, the cross, atonement, God's grace and mercy, It builds a passion and a boldness with it. Second, if the gospel is the power of God to salvation, then the church is given a powerful weapon to transform our culture. You realize if this is the power of God, the proclaiming of God's power, the God that saves, if the gospel is the power of God to salvation, then the church is given a powerful weapon to transform our culture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For the weapons of our warfare are not that of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations, every lofty thing that raises up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The church has a powerful... We look, this nation is in a mess. It's in sinful depravity like we've never seen. What's going to help? Not morality, not religion, not the Republican Party, not conservative talk radio. It's the gospel. We have a powerful weapon in the church. 
when we preach Christ. And third, the gospel is suitable to save, suitable to save all people, all cultures, and all classes. The trend of our day seems to be the watering down of the truth of God's word, making it less offensive, more palatable to individuals and cultures. Well, somehow, if we make it more palatable, it's going to be effective. That's what we heard in the Sunday school class in some American, the great, second great awakening. Let's just make this thing more palatable. Let's soothe, comfort the listener. Let's accommodate the world by watering down the truth of God's word. What the gospel is and what it declares made Paul more unashamed to proclaim it, not less, more unashamed to proclaim what the gospel is as it is. The power of God for saving everyone. It's the same gospel. We don't need to change it from culture to culture. We don't need to contextualize. We just need to preach Christ as it is given in the word. And according to the word, it saves everyone that God chooses to save. It's not my job to make this more palatable. It's not my job to entertain you or to tell funny stories. My job is only to preach Christ and yours as well. And therein lies the power. It's in the preaching of the word, preaching of Christ, the power of God. He will save sinners. Father in heaven, we thank you for this message that has transformed our lives as believers. And I pray for any that may be listening now that are yet without Christ, that they may experience that power as well. And we recognize and we praise you that you're the only one that can change the human heart. All we can do is preach the message and the power belongs to you to transform sinners. Your name be praised, your son be praised, and we praise the spirit that gives us the gift of faith. Christ's name, amen.